0: Jude, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers, Defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. I once watched a CNN interview where a panel of reporters were firing questions at a popular TV preacher. These CNN interviewers all were advocates for acceptance of the LGBTQ lifestyle, and they were doing their best to coax this famous pastor into a debate on homosexuality. They had him on the hot seat. Several times, the pastor tried to state the biblical view that homosexuality is a sin, but when he went there, the interviewers, they would push back. And then he would become ambiguous about what the Bible teaches. Clearly, he didn't want to take a stand. The pastor kept saying, I don't really talk about that much. I want to lift people's spirits and help them reach their potential. And then he added, I just try to stay in my lane. And I'm afraid this pastor's statement is the strategy of today's evangelical church in general. We choose subject matter that's non-controversial and acceptable to cultural tastes. Stuff like self-improvement and human potential and positive thinking and self-actualization, etc., cetera, et cetera, We don't dare deviate from what sells. Churches today find what tickles people's ears and keeps them coming back. And then they stay in that lane. If it's pleasant and agreeable, they'll talk about it. But they go to great lengths to avoid difficult subjects and unpopular positions. Some pastors refuse to get pinned down and take on a stand that might get disputed. Like the preacher being interviewed by CNN, pastors today take the approach, hey, we only want to talk about what lifts people's spirits. We just want to stay in our lane. We forget that the Christian gospel is both good news and bad news. The word gospel means good news, but the good news begins with the bad news. You're a sinner. Your nature is twisted. Your life is opposed opposed to God. You are damned to hell with the devil and his demons. And it's only after you've agreed with the bad news that you're then ready for the good news, that Jesus can forgive your sins, that he wants to unravel your twistedness, that he'll make you acceptable to God and he'll deliver your soul to heaven. You know, it's true, sin is an unpleasant subject, especially when you start naming specific sins, especially when you start naming your own sins. Exposing sin causes us to squirm, but until my illness is diagnosed, why would I accept the cure? If my lane as a pastor is only what flatters and uplifts and affirms, then I'll never address the sin that's holding people back. There's no reason for the good news to be received unless the bad news is believed. And this is why Jude decided to steer out of his lane. He writes in verse 3 Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice Jude's original intention was to write about their common salvation. Now, I'm not sure what all that would have included. But I imagine Jude would have extolled God's amazing grace and the completeness of his pardon and the sealing of his spirit, maybe a listing of the fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit, perhaps a description of their home in heaven. There would have been very little, though, in the letter that Jude started to write that would have been offensive or upsetting to his readers. His original thoughts would have been agreeable. But unlike the preacher on CNN and many other pastors today, Jude was willing to steer out of his lane. He realized that there were problems in the church that couldn't be ignored. There were issues that needed to be addressed. Carnal teachers and false doctrine had infiltrated the church and were threatening God's people. Silence was not an option. Jude needed to speak out, even if he said what he said made people feel uncomfortable recently on wednesday nights we've been teaching through the book of acts we'll pick back up after our summer recess the story in acts is the growth of the early church the book is formally entitled the acts of the apostles but if you keep reading through the new testament the post acts epistles reveal a backstory For as the apostles spread the gospel, apostates or heretics, false teachers, tried to contaminate the gospel they were spreading. The word apostate means to fall away. There were backslidden believers who had retreated from the true faith, and they were taking other unsuspecting folks with them. Jude saw that these false teachers were alive and well. In fact, rather than the Acts of the Apostles, you could call Jude's message the Acts of the Apostates. And rather than stay in his lane, his brothers and sisters were being deceived. So Jude had the courage to sound an alarm. He came out of his safe zone to address the evil he saw, regardless of the awkwardness it caused. Rather than describe their common salvation, Jude found it necessary to write, exhorting them to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Thankfully, he wasn't afraid to leave his lane, even if it created conflicts and hurt feelings, even if it caused tension and angry rubs. See, there are times when every pastor needs to leave the safe lane and enter the danger zone where only one opinion can prevail, where only one way is right, even when doing so risks collisions and crashes. Last month, I was invited to New Zealand to speak to the Calvary Chapel pastors there. While we were there, Kathy and I decided to take some vacation, and so we enjoyed the beautiful New Zealand countryside. We actually rented a car, and we tooled around the islands. And three features are unique to driving in New Zealand. First, you drive on the wrong side of the road. That's why you are constantly telling yourself, keep left, keep left, keep left, keep left. It's a matter of life and death. Second, there are lots and lots of roundabouts. These Kiwis, they fall in love with roundabouts. And then third... For some explicable reason, New Zealand has hundreds of single lane bridges. Apparently, the New Zealand DOT is too cheap to spend a little bit more money and just build a two lane bridge. And for an American who's used to a world full of multi lane bridges, the first few times you pull out onto a one lane bridge, it's a little disconcerting. You feel a bit uneasy. On a two-lane bridge, there's room for two vehicles traveling in opposite directions, but not so on a one-lane bridge. Put two cars on a uni bridge, one headed north and the other headed south, and there's no such thing as an equality of cars. Pluralism doesn't work on a one-lane bridge. Either there's going to be a crash or a standoff. There's not room for both cars to pass simultaneously. And there are times when life is like a one-lane bridge. Two opinions can't pass simultaneously as if both are equally true. The two ideas will either crash or force a standoff. But both can't be right simultaneously. One lane means somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And not just every pastor, but every Christian at times needs the courage to pull out on this one-lane bridge. We need to take a stand for what's biblical and true with our relatives, with our co-workers, with our neighbors. God has revealed his will to mankind. He hasn't left us in the dark. And in many situations, he leaves no room for multiple conclusions. That's why we can't be afraid to pull out into that single lane just because we might crash with someone coming the opposite direction or face a standoff. Hey, we can be polite, we can let them pass, and then we can pass, but we're both not going to cross equally and simultaneously. Well, rather than stay in his lane, Jude was willing to pull out onto that one-lane bridge, Even if it meant losing a friend or slowing down the growth of his church or alienating a group of people or even inciting opposition. Jude trusted God. And he realized his job was to be faithful to God's word regardless of the circumstances. And so Jude begins in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, Jude isn't going to tell his readers anything new. In fact, his letter is a reminder. He admits it up front. In fact, you can compare the first few verses here in Jude with 2 Peter chapter 2. And you'll be surprised by the similarities. Some Bible scholars believe that Jude actually borrowed from Peter. Which, by the way, is not a problem. Don't be shocked that one biblical author might have borrowed from Another. When it comes to biblical insights, trust me, we're all borrowing. We're ultimately borrowing from God himself. In reality, all truth is God's truth. It all originates with him. And if something God gives me helps you live it out or say it better, then by all means, you use it for his glory. I've heard it said originality is the art of concealing your sources. It's like the guy who once said, I am determined to be original or nothing. And he was both. If you want to communicate something that I've said to someone else, here's how you do it. The first time you quote me, you say, as Sandy Adams once said. The next time you say, as a wise man once said. And then the third time you say, as I have always said. It's possible that Jude borrowed from 2 Peter to reiterate warnings to his readers that they already knew. And yet, sadly, how often do we forget what we know? I have a son who is an industrious young man. He was a great athlete, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. He works with wood, changes his brakes, remodels houses, coaches little league. Does chores for his mom that his dad doesn't want to do. Even sells fertilizer in his part time. Nick is a renaissance man. And if anyone knows that you need to keep oil in your car, it is my son Nick. And before I let him drive my precious Toyota Corolla, the one with the sunroof, the car that I really, really, one of my favorite cars of all time, I reminded my son Nick, it burns a little oil. So when you pull into a gas station, check the gas, but always fill the oil. Yet guess what happened? I suppose life got the best of the boy. He was going to college at the time, probably dating a young lady that he would eventually marry, preoccupied with other stuff. And because he never bothered to put oil in that Toyota, he burned up the engine. He burned up one of my all time favorite cars, the Toyota with the sunroof. Did I tell you it had a sunroof? (laughs) Yet, Jude's readers made the very same mistake. They knew all about Israel's exodus from Egypt and the unruly angels at the time of the flood and the plight of Sodom and Gomorrah. These Old Testament stories were familiar ground, they'd heard them many times. They knew the moral of these stories. But life had gotten the best of them. The devil had lulled them to sleep and distracted them and confused them and caused them to forget. They had forgotten what they had always known. And in verses 5 through 7, Jude stirs up their memory. Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, That the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. They knew this. They knew that the very same people who died in the wilderness were those who had also exited from Egypt. They knew the story, but they had forgotten the implications. The Hebrews Moses led out of Egypt saw God work in miraculous ways. They saw the rod that turned into a serpent. They saw the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. But they had the bad habit of listening to the wrong people. First, it was Edward G. Robinson. You remember the little twerp in the movie that was always contradicting Moses? You remember Edward G. Robinson? Go away, drown in the sea. How long will the fire hold Pharaoh back? Will it hold After this back? day, you shall see his chariots no more. No, you'll be dead under them. Oh, no. I, I just don't know why Moses didn't reach over and slap that little guy down. I, <laughs> that's what I would have done. Later, Israel listened to the rebel Korah. Still later, they listened to the 10 doubting spies rather than the faithful witnesses, Joshua and Caleb. They kept listening to the wrong people. You know, whenever God does a work, the devil places an operative in close proximity to cast doubt and fear. The Hebrews who exited Egypt perished in the wilderness because they didn't listen to the voices of faith. And this is the mistake made by Jude's readers. They too were listening to the wrong voices. They'd been warned beforehand that it would happen, but now that the false teachers were here, they forgot. Jude warns them that just because you begin well doesn't mean that's how you're going to finish. A good start doesn't guarantee a happy ending. It's not just having faith that matters as much as it is continuing in your faith. And if Jude's readers reject his warning and fall away from the faith, they too will be destroyed. Well, we find another example of those who forgot what they knew in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. When Peter tells this story, he does so in the context of the days of Noah and the global flood. Whereas the Hebrews had been listening to the wrong people, these angels violated their God-appointed boundaries. Do you know God sets boundaries for us? He tells us what we can do, what we can't do, where we go, where we don't go. He sets boundaries for us, not to hem us in, but he sets boundaries for us to keep dangers out. But these angels, they violated these God-appointed boundaries. Now, here's where I want you to use your sanctified imagination a moment, for I'm going to make a bizarre suggestion. Jude's phrase, angels who did not keep their proper domain, is taken by some Bible scholars as a picture of fallen angels or demons who actually crossed a God-imposed barrier and engaged in sexual relations with mortals. Genesis, Genesis 6 is offered as proof. There we read, Now it came to pass, the sons of God, which was a common biblical idiom for angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh." Yet his days shall be 120 years. That was the time, the duration before the flood. Fallen angels or demons were appearing on earth in male form and romancing the daughters of men. But it gets even more bizarre. In fact, I need a little Twilight Zone music here. Okay, good. Good. Because Genesis 6 continues. It says... For there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. These unlawful unions between demons and daughters created a race of giants. They were a freakish hybrid, a humanoid type race. Of course, ancient mythology was full of gremlins and titans and nymphs and hobbits, people who fit this description, were divine beings intermarried with human beings. Perhaps these legends were echoes of the actual giants in Genesis. Understand a major component of God's creation was to separate. The Creator separated the light from the darkness, the day from the night, the waters above from the waters below. And God separated life. All living species reproduced after their own specific kind. God placed biological boundaries between species. Yet today's geneticists are busy in laboratories developing methods to challenge those boundaries. I read where the Salk Institute in California, a biological research group, is growing human organs inside animals. For transplant surgeries in humans, hybrid humanoids could be right around the corner. Well, in a sense, the devil tried the spiritual equivalent of this in the days of Noah. And this was why God had to wipe out the human race and lock up these demonic culprits in the deepest parts of hell reserved for a future fiery judgment. It could be other than Noah's family, the demons had contaminated the entire gene pool. God took extraordinary measures to clean house and to reboot. He destroyed all but eight people in the flood. And realize this idea of sexual experiences with demons is not as bizarre a theme as you might think. It appears in the occult as well as in some of the UFO literature. And if you're like me, and if you believe that some of these UFO sightings are actually demonic appearances, then what about the alleged sexual abductions? It could be another instance of fallen angels leaving their proper domain. This has also become a favorite Hollywood storyline. A number of films have been about angels romancing women. As is often the case, at times, truth is stranger than fiction. Of course, Jude's point is less provocative than his illustration. There were angels created by God. They beheld God's glory. They peered into God's beauty. Yet they chose to rebel and establish their own boundaries. And now Jude is warning us not to do the same. For this is what you do when you look with desire at a woman who is not your wife or when you covet your neighbor's new car or when you take a drink knowing that you're going to get drunk or when you embrace a doctrine that you know is unbiblical or when you rebel against an authority that God has set over you or when you take something that doesn't belong to you you are crossing god established boundaries judas saying don't forget don't forget what happens when people forsake their proper domain. And false teachers were encouraging such rebellion. Judas sang to us, to you and me, don't forget the example of the angels who did not keep their proper domain. And then, don't forget the example in verse 7. For as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality... And gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were Old Testament cities situated near the Dead Sea. They were judged by God in a blazing inferno. In Genesis 19, fire fell from heaven. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 makes it clear that homosexuality was only one of Sodom's sins. There in Ezekiel, we find that pride and idleness and greed and apathy all played a part in provoking God's judgment. God is grieved by many different sins. Yet here, Jude focuses on her sexual perversions, which brings up lots of questions. What does God say about homosexuality? Is it a sin? What causes same-sex attraction? Are people born homosexual? I understand that there are homosexuals who don't ever remember not feeling the way they feel. Our identity as male and female formed very early in our lives. Sometimes childhood events beyond our control twist our psyche. Some folks believe they were born homosexual, but realize just being born a certain way doesn't make it preferable. Being born with a birth defect doesn't mean that we would celebrate the malady or that we would never seek to overcome it if there was a means to do so. In fact, even if folks are born homosexuals, that doesn't mean that God designed them that way. We live in a fallen world and proof of its fallenness is all around us from inexplicable cancers to random earthquakes. Our fallenness is evident even from our birth. None of us are born the perfect beings that God created in Eden. We're all genetically inferior to what God designed. The Bible teaches us that every human is born into sin. Every one of us inherits a sin nature from the first man, Adam. We're all twisted and sinful from the start. I believe we're all born with our own twistedness, whatever that might be. I think there's evidence that alcoholics are born with a genetic, physical propensity to alcoholism. Some psychologists suggest that there's a gene that triggers violent behavior. But even if both those theories are true, it still doesn't justify alcoholism or violence. We would help both persons overcome their sinful tendencies. Today, LGBTQ activists want to make it criminal to help a person change their sexual orientation. I'm afraid they're fighting against Jesus. For Jesus wants to unravel and untangle all our twisted identities. He wants to straighten out my twistedness and yours. We all struggle with sin of some sort. Jesus calls us to trust him. He has the power to overcome any sin. Remember, the Bible teaches us from cover to cover that gender and sexuality are God-established, they're God-given. And the scripture's clear, homosexuality is a deviation from God's design. It's less than his best. But you see, here's what happens. We We meet a gay person, and we discover that they're nice. They're a kind person. We meet their partner, perhaps, and we realize that they, too, are a nice and caring person. In fact, they both seem to love each other. My, they get along as well as some of the married couples we know. And we find ourselves forgetting what the scripture teaches. We can love the person, but we still need to recognize what behaviors God considers to be sinful. It's not our place to step over or redraw or reset the boundaries. This is why Jude warns us, remember what you know. Sodom was a city that threw out God's order for sexuality. They interacted in these unnatural ways. Jude uses the phrase, they went after strange flesh. And God judged the city of Sodom as a result of this behavior. Today, there's no doubt that God loves all people regardless of what their sin happens to be. He loves us enough to send his son to die on the cross, to forgive us and to unravel our twistedness. He offers us forgiveness. But it's still true that God judged a city given over to this sin, and in doing so, he left no doubt how he felt about this behavior. We won't be deceived if we recall what we know. This is what Jude is telling his people. Don't forget what you know. Verse 8 tells us, And likewise also these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Now back in verse 4, Jude mentioned the false teachers who had crept into the church unnoticed. They snuck in incognito. They had disguised themselves as advocates of God's grace, but they had turned grace into lewdness. Always give it time. You know, people reveal their true colors given enough time. Jude describes who these men really were. They preached freedom in Christ, but in reality, they indulged and defiled the flesh. Rather than see their body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, they treated it like an altar to Bacchus, the God of wine. Or Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. They weren't about God's grace and glory. They were about their own selfish gratification. In addition, these false teachers were haughty and arrogant. They bragged that they served Christ and not men. Oh, they claimed to be free. But their boast was just a smokescreen for their disdain for all authority. They were arrogant. They even had no fear fear of God. Beware of people who lack spiritual proportion. People who speak of the Almighty in trivial terms like, oh, the man, me and the man upstairs, man, we're tight. Or me and the big guy, oh yeah, we're together. Or people who crack jokes about, or uh, that belittle or caricature angels and demons and put them in comic book fashion. Beware of that kind of thing. The Bible says that we're in a spiritual battle that angels are our allies, that demons are our adversaries. And if we want to be taken seriously as a Christian, we should be serious about spiritual realities. We need to have some spiritual proportion in our estimation. Jude uses an illustration for this in verse 9. He says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation. But said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Now, Jude speaks of Michael's struggle with the devil as something we should all know about. But in reality, this is the only place it's mentioned in the scriptures. I'm speculating as to the motive. But if the devil could have gotten the body of Moses and put the corpse into the hands of the Hebrews, it might have become an idol. In Egypt, the Hebrews were exposed to the art of mummification. Would they have turned Moses into a mummy? Given their tendency toward idolatry, probably would have. Thus, this wrestling match ensured that that didn't happen. But Jude's point is the way that Michael overcame Satan. When God's archangel spoke to the devil, he wasn't haughty, he wasn't presumptuous. He spoke in a measured way and he said simply, the Lord rebuke you. This reminds me of preachers today who arrogantly attack the devil and start calling him names and start slandering the devil and his demons with all kinds of bombastic rhetoric. They shout at him and they boss him around as if he's their equal. Again, they lack spiritual proportion. And don't don't misunderstand, I'm not a fan of the devil. You know that, don't you? I'd never say a nice word about him. But neither am I arrogant enough to call him out and pick a fight. I don't want to go there if I don't have to. The devil, though soiled and sinful, is still an angelic being. And he's powerful. In Christ, he is no match for me. But without Christ, on my own, I'm no match for him. And this is why Michael, the archangel, I mean, this is an angel with some rank and some muscle. He doesn't shout vicious threats. Rather, he resists Satan, but in a humble manner. Michael made sure that he kept Jesus between him and the devil. He showed respect for spiritual realities. He had some measure of proportion. He knew the power of his foe, and he said simply, the Lord rebuke you. Hey, never live in fear of the devil. 1 John 4, verse 4 tells us, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. James 4, verse 7 assures us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But that doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly as if we could take on the devil ourselves. Whenever you encounter the devil, always keep the Lord Jesus between you and him. You do that by saying, as Michael did, the Lord rebuke you. That's the appropriate response. And then verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And to keep ourselves from being deceived, Jude gives us three more illustrations that we need to remember. We need to steer clear of false teachers who come in the way of Cain, in the era of Balaam, and in the rebellion of Korah. Now, remember the way of Cain. The way of Cain was anger. Remember, he got mad that his brother's sacrifice was accepted and not his own. He got angry at God, and he took out his anger on his brother Abel. He killed him. And what Judas is telling us is beware of the angry pastor who comes in the way of Cain. Have you ever met an angry pastor? I have. They don't last long. A servant of God should be motivated by love. Love for God and love for people, not anger toward anyone. Beware of the angry pastor. Don't follow him. And beware of the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam was greed. You remember Balaam. He went divining for dollars, you could say. He was a soothsayer. He was an ancient wizard who was approached by the king of Moab to curse God's people, Israel. And he was willing to do so. Show me the money. He had a fee. He was divining for dollars. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, instead, God put a blessing on his tongue. The king, he didn't want to pay for unfulfilled curses, and Balaam wanted the money. So he came up with a plan. He told the king how to get Israel's God to curse them himself. He said, here's what you need to do. Round up all your Baywatch babes, all your Baywatch girls, and send them down into Israeli camp. And when the men of Israel commit adultery with them, God himself will curse them. That's exactly what happened. Jude's point, though, here is beware of the greedy pastor. The guy that's always harping on giving, always preaching on tithing. The guy who is always finding ways to get in your wallet, you need to get him out of your life. And then the rebellion of Korah was jealousy. You remember, Korah couldn't stand it that God's hand was on Moses and not him. Korah challenged Moses' authority, but to prove his hand was on Moses, God opened up the ground and he swallowed up Korah and his crew. You could say they bit the dust. And Jude is warning us of the false teacher who has to dominate every event and always throw his weight around. Stay away from the power-mongering pastor. See, by all means, avoid the angry man like Cain, the greedy man like Balaam and the jealous man like Cora. Well, I hope you appreciate the fact that your pastor this morning didn't deliver an easy sermon. I didn't choose to speak on our common salvation. Your pastor moved out of his lane a bit and dealt with some issues that needed to be addressed. I hope you'll do the same in your interactions with your friends at work and at home and at the office and in the neighborhood. We all should be willing to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, for speaking to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for these truths that you've spoken so clearly. Lord, I pray that we would remember these lessons. Lord, that when we're confronted by the the ambiguity of this world, When we're confronted, Lord, by what uh, the world is selling and what the world is saying and what the world is teaching, and, and we're tempted to conform, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to remember what we've been taught, to remember what you have said, to remember the truths of your word and your will for man, and not forget these things that you've taught us, not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word. So Lord, continue to speak to us, continue to work with us. Lord, help us to stand strong and be committed to your word. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,